When the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in 2013 and killed over 1,100 Bangladeshi garment workers, an accord was signed by several companies to improve working conditions. But several factory workers we spoke to said things haven't necessarily gotten any better. They asked not to be named. We've seen it all, all kinds of torture, physical, mental, on men and women. They don't treat us like humans. I once saw a young boy, a teenage worker, being choked. Then he was kicked from one corner of the other until he bled. Everyone was watching, but no one moved forward to help. Why? Because of fear. He was kicked while he bled till the supervisor came forward. Another worker I knew was severely ill and requested leave, but despite visible signs of illness, the supervisors at the factory didn't allow him to leave. Later, I heard that the boy had died. Imagine how sick he must have been. We can't say anything because we are all afraid. It is so hard seeing injustice all around. I just want this to stop. After the Rana Plaza incident, clothing companies started to do a bit more research on the existing factory buildings and our work environment. The buildings in front of us were found to have weak foundations and, as a result, they were evacuated and demolished. But now, there are no buyers and no work. This is another person we spoke to. She's been a garment worker for the last 15 years of her life. She's only 30. She earns around 10,700 taka, or $126, a month, which she spends on rent, food, and education for her young son. But this isn't near enough for her to make ends meet. The factory owners and supervisors make us work overtime without payment whenever there is a pressure for us to fulfill an order. They claim that we will get holidays later on, but when the time comes, they never actually fulfill their promises. I have worked 22 hours overtime without holiday or extra pay, but as more shipment orders come in, we work the same way, again and again, with the hope of finally receiving our pay. How is this still happening when 92% of the 250 largest companies in the world report on their sustainability performance and have jumped on board this much-publicised movement to improve their environmental footprint, their social imprint and their corporate governance? Business leaders have something to say about sustainability. You run a company where people are treated with respect and decency all the time. ESG, environmental, social and governance. It's become front and centre in almost every client conversation. And trying to maximise societal happiness. Minimising environmental impact. The packaging. Poor working conditions. That we Complete use. fraud. It's so ridiculous. Project plan, often safety issues. Governance has been addressed. The best companies that I know of are the ones that work towards a purpose. I'm Kanika Seigel. And I'm Nell McKenzie. And we'll be presenting this series of Euromoney's Treasury and Turbulence podcast. Where we'll be looking at where sustainable finance holds up and where it falls down. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on the disconnect between the factories where clothes are made and the biggest investment houses where those suits are worn. This podcast is supported by City Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 98 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change. In the garment industry, the actors with the most 
power over the working conditions in the supply chain are the multinational brands and retailers who buy from the supplier factories. Very few brands and retailers own directly own their own factories at this point. This is Chelsea Rudman, Director of Development and Strategic Partnerships at the Worker Rights Consortium a company that uncovers and reports on labour abuses in factories and sweatshops. Chelsea talks about how brands put so much pressure at the top of the supply chain that those closer to the bottom will cut corners to meet their demands. There's a lot of garment factories competing quite fiercely for brands' business. And so in order to secure brands' business, they have to promise shorter and shorter delivery times. You know, we'll turn it around very quickly and they have to be able to, they have to promise we'll be able to do it at a lower cost than this other factory that you're considering. And so this is how brands demand shorter and shorter Production times and lower and lower costs. But this doesn't align with the sustainable corporate agenda we are bombarded with every day. Sustainable finance, impact investing, corporate and social responsibility are all names for how companies are looking at their environmental, social and governance goals, or ESG. It's having a bit of a moment right now. Okay, yes. I'm Cynthia Williams. I'm the Osler Chair in Business Law at Osgoode Hall Law School, which is in part of York University, Toronto, Ontario. And I have been studying corporate responsibility and environmental, social and governance disclosure for 20 years. So why does it seem like it's a fad now? It's exploding. It's, you know, if you thought of it as a chemical reaction, you can have all of the elements in the beaker, but until you get to the activation energy, nothing happens. And things have definitely been happening for the last 30 years, but we haven't gotten to the activation energy previously. The game changer is the massive, passive asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. Because they are passive asset managers for you know major portions of their portfolio, they can't get in and out of companies in reaction to, you know, bad practices that are risking financial loss. And so they have started to engage more and understand more that these are financially material matters. This movement started in the 1970s, but really entered the public consciousness in the 1990s when major brands like Nike, Adidas and Gap were outed for using child labor. Today, the concept that environmental and social factors are financially material to a company's future profitability is unavoidable. My name is Peter Bucker. I'm the CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And in my prediction, the next phase of that journey will be that it will actually become part of the fiduciary duty of any board of any company. And the reason for that is the sustainability challenges are now so large and impactful that they are becoming part of the regular risk assessment of any business. What Peter is keen to highlight is that while ESG has become a principal component of doing business, the concept is still evolving. Whether and what type of labor or labor conditions in all those phases is a much tougher part. The tools to measure that are much less well-developed. There are still 20 million slaves in the world involved somewhere in supply chains. Those incidents have been well-mapped, but structurally, the mapping of social and human capital across value chains is much less developed than the environmental ones is. 
So, we have all these tools that measure CO2 emissions, deforestation, melting ice caps, etc. But there are fewer things in place that help us measure things like human rights abuses. I'm Danny Ortega. I am the project manager of a nonprofit based in the US that basically is dedicated to improving the financial well being of low income households in the developing world. Danny works for Microfinance Opportunities, which is currently working on a project called the Worker Diaries. Each week, they visit garment workers' homes in Bangladesh and ask questions like how many hours they work, how much overtime they do, breaks they get, and how much they get paid. And while Danny talks to some of the clothing brands, she hasn't had any interest from the asset managers and investors we heard about at the start of the episode. So we haven't had any discussion with them, but I would be, I mean, I would love to have discussions with anyone who wants to see our data, they can see our data. So part of it is public in our website, and then we're more than happy to share our data with anyone, any stakeholder who might find it interesting or useful in their own activities. I understand that before, like maybe before the Rana Plaza incident, there wasn't a lot of information um, available to them. But I feel like um, there are a lot of resources available now. Our data been one um, that they can use to make more informed decisions as to where they put their money. Because I do think that they should take into account, um, not just them, but everyone should take into account the worker's perspective whenever you're basically talking about um, sustainability or just making sure that things work better. So the data is out there. Exactly. And it seems like the responsibility lies on the corporate to seek it out. Companies across the board make all sorts of sustainable pledges relating to the environment and working conditions. But more often than not, they are a tick box exercise where once a year a brand will visit a factory when local managers are on their best behaviour. Here's Aruna Kashyap, Senior Women's Rights Counsel at Human Rights Watch. I mean, there's not a single retailer who will ever say to you or me that they don't know what goes on in their supply chain, right? They all say, we all know and we have codes of conduct. They have a code of conduct. It literally leads like a bill of rights, right? It'll say, oh, there should be no child labor. We have zero tolerance for violence and abuse against workers. But the problem here is that these codes of conduct, these pledges, are not backed up by business practices that help factories implement these changes, especially when brands continue to put pressure on factories to cut costs and deliver faster. Brands should also hear from investors that we don't want to see profits at the cost of labour abuses in the supply chain. We don't want to see profits at the cost of human rights. The investment that the brand needs to make in cleaning up its business practices, those investments have to happen and cannot be cut short. I think that's a message that investors are well positioned to give and should give if they're truly committed to human rights. Investors sometimes call human rights and labor rights groups to ask about specific practices of brands. You know, we pass along information we have. We can also tell them about our key recommendations for what brands and retailers should be doing. And that's the way we can influence what investors do. But are the investors, the firms that own shares in these brands and can vote on company decisions, doing enough? Some of them are just starting to. Last September, a Morningstar study revealed that some of the biggest investors didn't use their voting power to influence ESG-related goals for the corporates they invest in. Out of 117 sustainability-related shareholder initiatives last year, BlackRock and Vanguard supported only 10% of 84 proposals that focused on social factors. But things at BlackRock have changed, they say. In January, they actually joined a shareholder initiative headed up by the Church of England, to push ExxonMobil to publish greenhouse gas emissions targets. 
This was something that BlackRock had previously voted against. And unlike before, when BlackRock used to say that instead of voting for change, it would talk directly with management, this year, BlackRock sent a letter to clients saying that if a company failed to disclose and meet goals on sustainability-related risks, it would hold them to account through proxy voting. Here's Chelsea Rudman again. Combined, yes, sure, they could be putting pressure on the brands and retailers to restructure the industry effectively. In other words, pay the suppliers enough to ensure that the suppliers can operate safely. Commit to having independent inspections, not inspections paid for by the brands, of their factories and to make those results public so that you know, consumers, for example, can know, can see the results of uh, what independent monitors found at the factories that are producing the clothing that they're purchasing. Investors could do that, but it would incur costs in terms of time and money on the brands to do that. And so that that's a, that's a kind of strain between investor and company that I think a lot of investors are not that interested in creating. And it would require the companies they're investing in to incur additional costs, which also is usually something that investors are not super enthusiastic about. So what about the shareholders who are already using their way to influence ESG? At NN Investment Partners, the asset manager owned by NN Group, which is the largest Dutch insurance company, own Bosch, head of specialized equity and responsible investing, says they work with NGOs and even make visits to companies. The very important thing is, uh, is engagement. So as an owner of the corporate, as an investor, you have access to the management team. You can discuss with them. You can clearly have engagement on a lot of topics and basically push them into the right direction and help them achieve their their KPIs as well. And of course, if after a couple of years of engagement, it is clear that the company actually doesn't want to achieve their KPIs and has basically other plans, then as an investor, you could decide to uh, not invest anymore in this company and divest it from your portfolio and through that also put some pressure on the corporate. But meeting sustainability goals might not be a straightforward process. This is Hervé Dutte, Chief Sustainability Officer for BMP Paribas. It's not a hard science. If, if it was, it would be easy, it would be codified. It's much more complex than that. Among investors, you have different values and philosophies, and there's no reason to say that this one is better than the other. Some will only invest in what is green. Some others, another subset of sectors that are not green today, that cannot be green tomorrow, like the airline industry, shipping industry, cement, steel, mining, and so on, can be much um, more efficient, faster. So that's called the transition space. And then you have others uh, who also recognize the social dimension. Some radical shift may have uh, very pernicious social consequences, like putting uh, out of a job uh, thousands of workers. In their investing philosophy, they think you have to balance the environmental benefits and the social consequences, and so on and so forth. It doesn't shock me that uh, you know people have different sets of values. They're not. They're based on sound rational, and it's fine. So, if companies have different sets of values, what ESG goals should be made the priority? Well, for the garment workers we spoke to, their priorities are the types of things we take for granted every day. How can your employers treat you more fairly? 
I would ask them to increase our wages to at least 15,000 to 20,000 takas, which is the minimum amount required to live a normal life for us. I would ask for more holidays so that we return to our jobs much more energised and which will actually make us more productive. I want our companies to be properly monitored. Sometimes our managers are involved in theft and they don't do their work properly. So why do they have these jobs? What would you like to tell the investors or clothing companies that keep garment factories in Bangladesh running? I wish some of the buyers would come visit us in disguise regularly to monitor things and keep things under control. Our owner never visits us, never talks to us. They don't want to know the real story. If only they paid more interest to come and talk to us and lend us their ears, it would have been much easier for us to work with difficulties. Our owners really need to visit us more. Join us next time, where we look at the ESG ratings industry. It's a bit of a zoo. We are rating today 60,000 companies. Most of them are private. We, as a bank, don't rely at all on those. Very cautious as an investor. Sustainalytics agrees with you. (laughs) You win! Extremely dangerous. And I think brands have paid heavily, and workers have paid with their life. But for now, the in-house view, presented by City's Courtney Lawrence, Managing Director, Sustainable Banking and Corporate Transitions at City. Hi, I'm City's Courtney Lawrence and presenter of the House View today. I will be talking to Parvez Dalal, who is our Global Head of Working Capital Solutions at the bank. In this episode, we will be looking a little deeper into the role that banks play in creating more transparency within the supply chain. Let's get straight into the first question. So why is there such a lack of transparency in corporate supply chains? While technology could create transparency, it should include alignment by all the stakeholders, gathering all the relevant information. A technology cannot solve the issue in isolation. It can only include solutions that capture, translate, and disseminate useful data, as well as support appropriate decision-making in the changing world. With so much of uncertainty around global supply chain, transparency and visibility have become extremely important And it should be dynamic in nature, which will help deliver flexibility to cater to the complex issues like trade wars, virus effects, or maybe change in the regulatory environment. All of the above situation forces the supply chain both upstream and downstream to be extremely transparent and visible. And it has to be transparent not only to the internal stakeholders, but to the external world too. Can banks have any influence on accountability from the first to the last mile in a client supply chain? Well, to answer this question is yes, definitely. Meeting business objectives through sustainable supply chain is where the banks can create a big influence. If the ESG agenda is properly followed, it can deliver values till the last mile of the supply chain. While it is difficult to deliver the same value to all the counterparties, the percolating effect of the bank's involvement in delivering economic value could be seen across the entire value chain. Examples such as risk management, operational efficiencies, by delivering cost reduction and deploying products which are inclusive in nature and could withhold on a sustainable basis amidst credit and economic downtrends are very good example of how banks can help corporates deliver on their ESG agenda.
A very good example of it is offering supply chain financing to suppliers by leveraging the credit rating of the buyer, thereby deploying cheaper and sustainable financing option across all the supplier segment, which could continue to be offered throughout economic and credit downturns. Okay, Parvez, one final question. Stakeholders often talk about the need for higher ESG standards in business and investing. Are they putting their money where their mouth is? Yes, of course. If you look at it, Harvard Business School recently conducted an interview for 70 senior executives at 43 global institutional investing firms, including the world's three biggest asset managers like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and giant asset owners such as California Public Employees Retirement Systems. The California State teachers' retirement systems and the government pension funds of Japan and the Netherlands. And the research revealed that ESG was almost universally top of the mind for these executives. If you go back in 2006, when the UN-backed principle for responsible investment was launched, 63 investment companies, which are primarily asset owners, asset managers, and service providers, with a $6.5 trillion in asset under the management, signed a commitment to incorporate ESG issue into their investment decision. Fast forward April 2018, the number of signatories have grown to 1,715 and represented close to $82 trillion in the asset under management. So you can see the difference from 2006 to 2018 in the change in the numbers. Thanks, Parvez, for your insights and thought-provoking points. Join us next time when I will be speaking to Jessica Cavaletto in City Trade Sales on ESG Ratings.